0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day.
1: Hey, Behind the Knife listeners, it's your Miami Trauma Team. I'm Evo Rechega. I'm a general surgery resident, and I'm here with my other team members, Uri Neiman, our trauma fellow, and Risha Ratan, our trauma attending. For today's Journal Club episode, we'll be focusing on blunt pelvic trauma. Hemorrhage from blunt pelvic trauma is considered a non-compressible torso hemorrhage, which presents a challenge to trauma surgeons. It is often due to severe pelvic fractures, and mortality in some series is still reported as high as 30%. Somewhere between 80 to 90% of the time, this hemorrhage is due to bleeding from the sacral venous plexus. Management of these injuries to prevent exsanguination range from temporizing measures like pelvic binders to definitive surgery or embolization. Today, we'll discuss two studies that compare two common or possible hemorrhage control methods, preperitoneal pelvic packing and reboa. Preperitoneal pelvic packing is a surgical procedure that involves packing the retroperitoneal space to temporize major venous bleeding. It was developed in Europe over 20 years ago and quickly moved to the U.S., and it's now used throughout the country and included in various pelvic hemorrhage management protocols.
0: The use of intra-aortic occlusion methods for traumatic hemorrhage control was first reported in the mid-20th century, originating from the U.S. Army experience during the Korean War. While the first reports resulted in patients' death, future interest in such interventions continued, and more data was gathered. Use of the intra-aortic occlusion devices shifted to different civilian settings, and technical advances with intravascular therapeutics enabled safer use of the technique. You might have heard quite a lot of the Reboa by now, and you can certainly listen to the uh, Behind the Knife Big T series, episode 2, which deep dives into Reboa trauma usage in general. Anyways, to make a long story short, a unique population of patients who could benefit most from such use are patients with a blunt pelvic injury, where deployment of the occlusion device below the renal arteries, that is, zone 3 of the aorta, will be less of a concern for visceral organ ischemia. We'll start with the first study that we're going to discuss today. It was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons on January 2021. It is titled Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta Versus Preperitoneal Packing in Patients with Pelvic Fractures by Samar Asmar D and colleagues from the University of Arizona. This is a retrospective study based on the uh, 2017 TICWIT database. The aim was to compare outcomes of Reboa and or preperitoneal packing as temporizing measures in isolated blunt pelvic fracture patients. And the authors hypothesized that riboa is associated with worsened outcomes. That might have been due to the fact that the members in this group were amongst the authors of a JAMA article only two years prior, where the authors found higher rates of complications among the riboa group. So for our study, Inclusion criteria were patients 18-year-old and over with blunt pelvic fractures with a systolic blood pressure equal to or below 100 millimeters of mercury, which they defined as hemodynamically unstable. Those patients were divided into three groups, either preperitoneal packing, preperitoneal packing with Reboa, and Reboa only. All of these patients had an additional intervention, which was a laparotomy, a transarterial embolization, or both. Which patients were excluded from the study? Well, those were patients pronounced dead on arrival, patients who were transfers, patients with significant injuries outside the pelvis or the lower extremities, as defined by an abbreviated injury scale, more than two. Other patients where time to reboa was more than one hour from arrival, patients who had an edithoracotomy, or patients who had a known bleeding diathesis, those all were excluded do you have any remarks on the inclusion and exclusion criteria?
2: Yeah, that's a good question, Yuri. First of all, I think for both of these studies, both author groups should be commended for looking at a really hot topic, controversial, and doing the best they can with re- a retrospective database to answer this question. But it's really important when the listener or clinician look at these studies, it's important that they... Really pay attention to the inclusion and exclusion criteria so that they know whether or not they're applying the study's conclusions to their own patients appropriately. And so, what, one thing that I just want to underline here is that this inclusion criteria really focuses on what essentially becomes isolated blunt pelvic fracture patients. You see here that they do include some lower extremity injuries, but we are not talking about the majorly injured poly trauma patient here, those patients are excluded. The ones who you know, are a pedestrian struck and severely injured coming in with major torso injury in both the thorax and the abdomen, as well as an open book pelvic fracture that's bleeding. These patients are not studied there. So for listeners who are thinking of applying these findings to those patients, I would express caution that that would be an issue of external validity, wherein you cannot extrapolate the findings of this study, focusing again on isolated pelvic fracture patients to something like a polytrauma patient.
0: Thanks, Rishi. And back to our study, as for outcome measures, primary measure was mortality, both 24 hours and in hospital, and the time to intervention, whether laparotomy, angioembolization, and the ribo itself. 749 patients met the study's inclusion criteria, There were 52 who underwent both Reboa and preperitoneal packing, 149 who got the Reboa only, and 548 patients who got packing only. The patients receiving the different interventions were not randomly selected and were retrospectively assessed in order to ascertain the effect of the hemorrhage control measure, that is the Reboa and packing, on the outcomes of those different patients while adjusting for the confounding factors the research team used a propensity score matching system with a one-to-one-to-one ratio. Thus, three patient groups were created, each containing 52 matched patients, and those were the ones compared. As for the data points collected on all patients, demographics, comorbidities, vital signs in the emergency department, injury mechanism, and its characteristics, including specific fracture classification, and the hemorrhage control interventions, were all collected for all patients. Trauma center level of certification was also noted. This data was used in creating a logistic regression model, delivering a propensity score between zero to one, which was used to match each patient in the smaller numbered group, in our case, the 52 patients who got both Reboa and packing, with the patients who are most similar score-wise in the other groups, and creating three groups of 52 patients with more comparable background variables. Now, looking at the article's tables, we can see how most pre-matching variables, that is, table one of the article, are significantly different between groups, while the post-matching variables, which we can see in table two, are not significantly different. Maybe this is a good time for a deeper dive on propensity score matching.
2: Sounds like a plan, Yuri. And yeah, it it can seem a little bit confusing at first when you read about propensity score matching or have encountered it for the first time. and I'll try to balance uh, getting too lost in the weeds with keeping it simple and straightforward so hopefully our listeners can get a better sense of what it's for. Now in the ideal study of a randomized control trial, you randomize the groups so that uh, based on you know your baseline variables and characteristics, such that the groups are similar and you don't have any confounding variables. The issue is that you cannot always do a randomized control trial. And so, again, these groups, which are doing sort of the next best level of evidence that they can, which is using these large retrospective databases, that sometimes creates problems by creating differences between the control and the experimental group or groups. The trauma surgeons may use different sets of criteria to determine whether a patient gets a Reboa or pelvic packing and some of those criteria may be variables that you're interested in following. And so again what ends up happening is that your reboa group and your pelvic packing group look different because they are different. And so how do you compare two groups that are different? Because if you just did a straight up comparison, what that introduces is bias due to confounding variables and you don't know necessarily if the difference that you then find is because of the roboa versus the pelvic packing or some of the other differences that you're reporting, for example, like the differences here in this study in table one. So what propensity score matching tries to do is reduce as much as possible that bias. No statistical analysis really eliminates bias entirely from a non-randomized study, but propensity score matching tries to reduce it as much as possible. And again, Yuri, as you said in in the real world example of this study, the way they try to do that is they try to match subjects within the control and experimental group. So often they'll take the experimental group and then they choose a subset of variables that they think are clinically relevant. And then what they do is they look for specific patients or specific subjects in the control group that look most like. The experimental group. So then you get a subset of the control group that looks like the experimental group more closely than the original. And then you compare these subsets through your propensity score analysis and matching. Then you can do statistical analyses on these subsets and hopefully get a more robust and valid answer. And there are all sorts of ways to um, compare and assess the validity of your propensity score match to make sure that the way that you've matched these patients up isn't in and of itself introducing bias. So for example, remember, there is an element of the researchers choosing the variables that they're going to include to match up in the propensity score match. And that can, number one, include a variable that's not clinically relevant, and that can create issues with the match or there may be a missed variable. Um, that is that the variable within the database that researchers failed to include that would be clinically relevant, or as often can be the case in a retrospective database, there's a variable that's not even included in the database. So you couldn't even include it in the study, even if you wanted to, but it's a clinically relevant variable that you would have otherwise liked to include. And so if you missed that, that can also affect the validity of your propensity score match. Regardless, it's a powerful method to assess two different looking groups at the outset when you are doing a non-randomized study, and it allows you to get a little bit closer to getting a robust analysis and pushing the field forward. Hopefully that made sense to our listeners that are encountering propensity score matching for the first time. And after that dry analytical talk, let's get back to the exciting clinical stuff.
0: All right. So I think the important thing is looking at the results. So what they saw was there was significant differences observed between the Reboa group to the pelvic packing group with or without Reboa, both in the time to laparotomy or angioembolization, where it was shorter time for the Reboa patients. Those Reboa patients received significantly less packed red blood cell units during the first four hours in hospital, and most importantly, had significant lower 24-hour mortality and overall in-hospital mortality. That is 14% in-hospital mortality in the Reboa group versus 25% in the pelvic packing group, up to 35% in-hospital mortality in the Reboa plus packing group. The groups of patients did not have significant differences in ICU stay or in entire hospital length of stay. They didn't differ in acute kidney injury events, and none of the patients in any group had a lower limb amputation. Just a reminder, the 2015-2016 TQIP database showed 3% amputation rate reported in the JAMA article from two years prior. So the authors conclude by stating that according to the study's results, Riboa usage for unstable patients with isolated blunt pelvic fractures is associated with improved outcomes when compared to preperitoneal pelvic packing only and to packing with Reboa. These results and conclusions are of course positive for Reboa proponents and give hope for a definition of a specific population of patients in the civilian settings who can really benefit from the usage of the technique. Having said that, It's quite rare to find a significant pelvic injury patient with no significant torso injury, and it's a very difficult clinical challenge to identify those patients in the immediate post-injury period where the decision on the use of Reboa is expected. So the study has its limitations, uh, and amongst which we should probably also mention the design for being retrospective and the fact that even using propensity score matching, one can never achieve a comparison as good as with a randomized controlled trial where the study groups are genuinely similar in most variables. Another difficulty I had while processing the clinical implication of the study is that the design and the decision they made to compare three different groups in two of which the REBOA was deployed. Because for me, the real clinical question that I don't yet have a good answer to is whether the Reboa is safe and effective compared to any other hemorrhage control measure. So what what I would have wanted to see is a study comparing a group of all Reboa patients, whether they used packing or whatever else in those patients to a mesh population where Reboa wasn't used at all. And talking about such a structure, might be a good time to introduce a second article we would like to discuss today. Eva?
1: Thanks, Yuri. Uh, The other study we will be discussing is actually very similar to the one we just went over, but with not so similar results. This one was done from a group in Boston at Mass General with the senior author Dr. April Mendoza and her colleagues, and was published in Injury in June 2020. It's entitled Preperitoneal Pelvic Packing for Early Hemorrhage Control Reduces Mortality Compared to Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of the Aorta in Severe Blunt Pelvic Trauma Patients, a Nationwide Analysis. The aim of this study was to compare the efficacy and outcomes of preperitoneal packing to Reboa with subsequent hemorrhage control procedures to control life-threatening hemorrhage and trauma patients. They hypothesized that Reboa in conjunction with standard trauma resuscitation would minimize delays to intervention and result in improved in-hospital survival when compared to preperitoneal packing. Similarly to the prior study, this is a retrospective analysis of the ACS-TQIP database. However, this study uses the database from 2015 to 2017, as opposed to just 2017 in the prior study. The study included patients greater than 15 years old with blunt pelvic fractures However, without excluding other injuries, unlike in the prior study, which excluded patients if they had AIS higher than two in other categories. Also, unlike the other study, this study did not make exclusion based on the presenting vital signs. In terms of the groups that they compared, actually, Uri, this study compared the exact groups that you were hoping to see head to head. It compared the preperitoneal packing group to Reboa, and in the Reboa group, it included patients that had Reboa alone as well as patients who had Reboa plus preperitoneal packing. Rishi, do you have any thoughts on these groups that they compared prior to the other study?
2: That's a great question, Eva. So, you know, one of the things that is a limitation of non-randomized studies, even the best designed ones, is that sometimes you can't get as granular as you want to. And while you can assess and analyze the variables that are available within the data set because there's no protocol and there is an aspect of clinical judgment that's not recorded in the data set it's hard to understand the true reasons for why something is happening the way it is so you can find correlation but you're not going to be able to find causation with respect to this study when you look at for example the reboa followed by pelvic packing subset of patients which is part of the reboa group you're not going to be able to identify whether or not it's considered a failure of Reboa and that Reboa didn't work. And so they added packing to that to get better hemorrhage control, or this was always the intention when placing the Reboa, that the Reboa was placed as a planned bridge to pelvic packing as definitive control, or whether or not the Reboa was placed as an attempt at hemorrhage control that did not work. And so then they, then you had to rush to the OR for pelvic packing in order to get better hemorrhage control. You're not gonna be able to tease these two situations out based on the database that was used. That's okay. That happens with retrospective studies and non-randomized studies. But it is an interesting thing because those are two different patients in the clinical scenario. When I have those two patients in the trauma bay, it's two different intentions. So when I have a patient in the trauma bay and a reboa is not working and i need to escalate my therapy that's a very different situation than if i was already planning to go to the or say for this polytrauma trauma patient and you know one of our the junior residents was already placing a femoral a line while we were doing the rest of the trauma resuscitation and it takes you know a couple seconds or a minute or two to then upgrade that to a reboa but we're headed to the or anyway for pelvic packing but i know that i'm opening the chest first or maybe opening the belly first and I just want some temporizing measure. Those are different situations. And the ideal would be to create a randomized control trial, which we'll hear a little bit about what's going on in that realm from Yuri a little bit later. But the ideal would be to, to incorporate that into your study protocol so that you can differentiate those two very different scenarios.
1: Thank you, Rishi. Those were all really good points that we all should take into account whenever we're reading any kind of study. To continue on, the exclusion criteria for this study included patients who were considered dead on arrival, outside hospital transfers, anyone with penetrating trauma, uh, those that did not have any pelvic fractures, those who underwent reboa or preperitoneal packing greater than four hours after arrival, and also those who had angioembolization or exfix done prior to receiving either reboa or preperitoneal packing. The primary outcome of this study was mortality, which included 24-hour mortality and overall in-hospital mortality. There were also multiple secondary outcomes, which included transfusion requirements, time to procedures, time in the emergency department, hospital and intensive care unit length of stay, and multiple complication rates, including acute kidney injury, surgical site infection, amputation, venous thromboembolism, and compartment syndrome. The statistical methods used in the study were similar to the prior study as well. They used a propensity score matching of the Reboa group versus the preperitoneal packing group in a matched one-to-one ratio, and they used logistic regression to estimate the probability of being assigned to either the Reboa or the preperitoneal packing group. They matched based on statistically significant variables between the groups, which included emergency department vital signs, injury severity score, and intra-abdominal solid organ injuries. So to go to the results, there were over 67,000 patients with blunt pelvic fractures identified in the study. 307 received preperitoneal packing and 113 were put into the Reboa group. Pre-match, the only differences in their clinical variables included Reboa group more often had a lower GCS, preperitoneal packing more often had kidney injury, and the Reboa group more often had lower extremity injuries. After the match, there were 204 patients, so 102 were matched to each group. Of the 102 patients in the Reboa group, 68% of them also had preperitoneal packing done. Between the two groups, there were some differences in clinical outcomes. Compared to the other study, in this study, there was lower in hospital mortality for the preperitoneal packing group versus Reboa at 37% versus 52%, and also in 24-hour mortality, which was 18% for the preperitoneal packing group compared to 32% for the reboa group. Similar to the prior study, there were no differences in the rates of complications that we discussed. However, in this study, it was a little different than the prior in that there was no difference in terms of the amount of units transfused, which was different from the Arizona study, which found less transfusions among the rubella group. Other differences in results compared to the other study were that the preperitoneal packing group in this study actually had a longer hospital length of stay and ICU length of stay, and they also had a longer time to procedure, while the Reboa group had a longer time in the emergency department. So in conclusion, unlike the prior study, the Reboa group was associated with increased mortality compared to the preperitoneal packing group, and this included both in-hospital and 24-hour mortality. Similarly, there were no differences in other complications like amputation, surgical site infection, and acute kidney injury. The limitations for the study are similar to those from the prior study, which include the inherent limitations of big database studies and retrospective reviews and other things that we've already mentioned during the podcast. So essentially, this study with a similar retrospective design in nearly the same database between very similar groups came up with exactly opposite results. So how did this happen? Well, this group actually showed that essentially Reboa alone or with preperitoneal packing, had higher mortality than preperitoneal packing alone. However, in the Reboa group of this study, almost three quarters of the Reboa group had preperitoneal packing also. When you look at the results of the Arizona study, while the Reboa alone group had the lowest mortality at 14%, the Reboa plus preperitoneal packing group actually had the highest at 35%. So given the fact that in this study, three out of the four patients in the Reboa group also had preperitoneal packing, the results are actually much more similar than at first glance. What I think is a crucial takeaway from this and reading both of these studies head-to-head is the importance of reading the methods, just like Rishi was mentioning, when critically examining any LUNU literature. A few changes to the methods and some nuances in the way that the groups are stratified can lead to completely different results for very similar groups. So it's important to understand how this happens and how it's clinically relevant. I feel like it's not uncommon for people to glaze over methods and just jump straight to the results and conclusion when reading a new paper. At least I can admit I used to do that before I did my lab years in residency. But it's basically what makes or breaks the work. This podcast and comparing these two studies is a great example of that.
2: Evan, yeah, those are really great points. And I think that really brings into focus the importance uh, when comparing studies within the field. And this was a journal club where we did a deeper dive on study design and methodology, but it may leave some questions with, well, what do I do now? Now that I'm, I've got two cutting edge studies by really good researchers, leaders in the trauma field, and I feel like they're saying different things. What am I supposed to do with this information? And really, I think, again, it goes down to, as you mentioned, the study design and the fact that the groups are different. And so I actually don't think that these two studies are really that contradictory, even though the findings seem opposite. I think what both studies together say is that the patients who need pelvic packing really need pelvic packing and benefit from it. And the patients who are going to need Reboa need Reboa and are going to benefit from it. What these studies don't answer and what none of the retrospective studies answer, because there's not enough granular data in a non-randomized retrospective database, is, well, who are the pelvic packing patients and who are the Reboa patients? We know that there are situations, there are particular scenarios in which Reboa is going to be of benefit. And we know that there are specific situations and particular scenarios in which pelvic packing is going to be of benefit. And I think that these studies help us get a little bit closer, bring into more focus just exactly who those patients are so that we can know it beforehand. But what we really need, again, to definitively answer that question are randomized controlled trials with strong, robust study design and statistical analysis.
0: Thanks, Rishi. Speaking about a randomized controlled trial, there is an ongoing randomized controlled trial running in the United Kingdom these days and its name is the UK Reboa Trial, and they're comparing standard major trauma center treatment with Reboa availability to standard major trauma center treatment alone, which means with no Reboa available. And it is due to conclude recruiting by the end of 2022, so hopefully we will be able to learn more of its results in the near future. In the meantime, what I'm taking home from reading these articles and generally as a clinician, is that I should always be evaluating the validity, the clinical significance, and the relevance of any study that I read. And as for the specific clinical scenario of a blunt pelvic hemorrhage, well, the reboa is another option we have for hemorrhage control. I think it's a lot like other fields of surgery, where minimally invasive procedures have taken place of open surgeries. We as surgeons, must be able to feel comfortable treating pathologies in different circumstances and with all tools in the surgical armamentarium. We choose as necessary and as clinically appropriate and not by being only comfortable with operating in one method or operating in one cavity. The same with bad pelvic bleed. I don't think there is necessarily one way to treat all those patients. In order to feel most comfortable using any of those methods, we probably should be able to use all of them. In order for me to be most comfortable using the intra-aortic occlusion device, I do wish I had better data on what exactly the complication rate is, who exactly is the patient due to benefit most, and for that to happen, as we said, we should have the prospective studies, the level one evidence, and hopefully this is coming soon.
1: All right. Thank you, Yuri, for those final thoughts. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And until the next time, continue to dominate the day.
0: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.